A new year, time for new growth. Grow your education and skills with Herzing University. Our online behavioral health programs fit your schedule and time. From an eight-month diploma program in health and human services to a 36-month bachelor's in psychology. Grow your behavioral health career with us wherever you are in your education. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Visit us online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. Online at herzing.edu or text HEALTH to 85109. It's been more than seven years since 911 was dialed, and it was reported that 27-year-old Donald DJ Ficky Jr. had committed suicide. But after multiple 911 calls and witness statements of those that were there, whispers of foul play soon swirled, shrouding DJ's final moments in a chilling web of confusion and lies. What was it that exactly happened? Did DJ kill himself? A sister who wanted justice for her brother worked tirelessly trying to find out what really happened, but with police and other investigators, Days in the investigation turned into weeks, then months, then years. Was there any hope in finding out what really happened? And will justice be given to DJ and his family? We'll try to find that out and more in this episode of Music City 911. Vicky Jr., otherwise known as DJ, was born on November 14, 1988, and was brought up in the small town of Chickamauga in Walker County, Georgia. He was a middle child and the only boy in a family of four kids, two older sisters, and one younger. His parents, Donald Sr. and Kathy, were a firm part of the kids' lives, but DJ was always closer with his dad being he was the only other male in the house. He was a kind person from, from early age. He was very respectful. He, he treated everybody well. My friend and fellow podcaster, Robert Palmer. My name is Robert Palmer. I'm uh, the host of the Broken System podcast. I had been listening to podcasts for you know a good portion of my life, and I've always been interested in true crime, especially in the Atlanta area with growing up with the Wayne Williams stuff and learning about all that with the Atlanta child murders. DJ was living a pretty normal life early on, but at the age of 14, his life changed. He lost his dad at an early age, which that caused, you know, he was a dad's boy and that caused a lot of issues in his life because he did lose him so early and, and that affected him and that kind of pushed him into that coping mechanism of drugs and it just kind of spiraled from there. DJ started using drugs recreationally. At first it was like a lot of other high school kids. They want to take their normal partying to a different level. Then as time went on, 
more drugs were experimented with. That drug mindset was still more of a fun thing for him. That continued after high school when he was reacquainted with someone he went to school with, Brandy Heath. They had actually went to school together. They were a couple years apart and really didn't get along in school. But outside, once they graduated and were outside of school, they were running in the same crowds. And, it, you know, it unfortunately was that, that drug crowd that they met in and, you know, just kind of hit it off. And, and she got pregnant. And once, you know, that happened, they got married and went down that road of, of marriage with a kid on the way. They ended up having three children together. But during all that, the drugs started taking a more firm hold on both DJ and Brandy. Somewhere along the line, DJ took Brandy to a place that he had been getting drugs from, a property with a trailer and an RV situated on it, owned by someone that was nicknamed Old Man. Things started getting dicey, and both DJ and Brandy felt they couldn't care for their kids properly. So they had went into what would be considered foster care but it was it with his mom uh, because of, you know, different bouts with the law. And they just knew that the environment that they were in wasn't a good environment for the kids. They just didn't have a stable environment. So they did what they thought was best for the kids at the time. You know, it goes back to, you know, doing the right thing in a bad situation. Things kept getting worse with the drugs. But through all that, DJ never stopped loving Brandy. Though that love wasn't always passed back to DJ. I think that DJ loved her very much, and she wasn't as all in on the relationship as he was. And he did everything he could to get out of the drug world, move away from it, do things like that. But she wasn't willing to give it up. So he would give up the things that he was trying to work for to go to be with her. And he felt like he was a protector for her, you know, to keep her out of really bad situations. And, and he wanted to just be there for. There was a lot of turmoil around their relationship from from the beginning. I don't think that it was ever that that fairy tale relationship. I think you know it was a lot of a lot of that issues with drugs and and things like that in their life. After a while, DJ and Brandy started staying at the old man's place, moving between there and the RV that was also on the property. And that RV was the man that was dealing most of the drugs. Marshall Payne. During the time that they were there, Brandy developed a sexual relationship with Marshall, and that, along with all the various drug use, it caused a ton of friction between DJ and Marshall, as well as Brandy, with both of them. That happened around 2015. They were buying drugs from that that residence. There was probably no less than 20 to 24 there were arrests that happened at that residence from drug-related type incidents. So they went to that house to buy drugs, kind of got into that area. They didn't have anywhere to go, so they offered for them to stay there. And then that relationship with Marshall kind of built from that. In the beginning, it started out as a drug-related friendship, I would say. It was kind of, hey, we're here, we'll be friends because we have this in common type thing. As DJ tried to get clean and things like that, he would leave. And then at that point in time, I think, you know, Marshall took advantage of Brandy with with the drug side of things. And they ended up forming some type of relationship that way. But DJ was always in the picture and he would always come back in the picture. 
and that caused a lot of contention. You hear during the time you hear Marshall say that him and DJ were friends. I don't think they ever really were. I think it was a convenience type thing for both of them. And he really wanted DJ out of the picture, whether it was, I think his intention at the whole time was to scare DJ out of the picture, if that makes sense. The tension was continuous with everyone there at the old man's property, often flaring up to the point of violence. Him and Marshall had gotten into a a verbal confrontation and then a physical confrontation out in the yard. They actually had golf clubs and were fighting with each other with golf clubs, and DJ knocked one of Marshall's teeth out with a golf club. So it wasn't no just little spat of... I think Marshall put it as, oh, you know, we, we had words, we went out, we, we did what guys do, and then we put everything to the side and we were best friends again after that. There were there were physical blows that caused damage and injury to both of them from the physical fight, and that was part of that. And then Brandy had had a physical altercation with Marshall to where he hit her at some point in time, and, and that caused another altercation between DJ and Marshall because of that. Emotions for everyone were all over the place there at the old man's property, but especially for DJ. Drug use, along with an affair had by his wife Brandy with his drug dealer Marshall, and then the physical violence that happened, it was taking its toll on DJ. Then on October 3rd, 2016, at around 1.12 p.m., a call was placed from the old man's trailer to 911. Mike 
was the one who was the caller on 911. There towards the end of the call, you could start hearing a woman in the background as well as Marshall talking to her, but it was difficult to understand what they were saying. As the dispatcher was sending out rescue services, the phone call disconnects. It's hard to tell what happened. In moments of chaos like that, the caller holding the phone can mistakenly hit the button to end a call, or it could have been done on purpose by the caller. The dispatcher calls back to try to finish his line of questioning. seems to get more agitated when he said just please send an ambulance once he heard that they were started the call again disconnects another employee there at the 911 center calls him back trying to find out more info while authorities were on the way to the scene 
dispatched as a suicide when they get there they would find a chaotic scene that was initially very difficult to interpret actress katherine heigl a passionate animal advocate who has saved over 16,000 dogs says she's been seeing more issues with dogs joints odors and health than ever before she believes there's a link between canine health and diet after extensive research she developed superfood complete a dog food pack with over 30 wholesome ingredients, including superfoods beneficial for your furry friend. Superfood Complete isn't just about deliciousness, though dogs love the taste. It's about supporting overall well-being. In addition to providing a healthy option for your pet, Badlands Ranch, the maker of Superfood Complete, also supports the Jason DeBus Heigl Foundation, which helps rescue countless dogs and find them loving homes. Dogs across America are trying this food and loving it. Go to BadlandsRanch.com slash MC901 and order right now to get up to 50% off your regular priced order with a 90-day money-back guarantee. If you want your dog to experience all these incredible things, go to BadlandsRanch.com slash MC901 today. Police, fire, and an ambulance were on the way to the scene of what was dispatched to them as a suicide. When they get there, they find a male and female standing outside. Those were Marshall and Brandy. Marshall was holding a spent shotgun shell in his hand, which he handed to the first officer that arrived. The officer asked where the gun was, and Marshall stated that it was on a shelf near DJ. After that, the officer entered the trailer and immediately saw DJ in a seated position with a devastating gunshot wound to the face. He called out loudly to him and got no response, then checked DJ for any signs of life, but he was not breathing and had no pulse. 
moved the shotgun to a table on the front porch, and after clearing the rest of the trailer to make sure the scene was safe, he had EMS enter, advising them upon entering that he found no signs of life and asked them not to move anything that wasn't necessary, being that it was a potential crime scene. This was all reported by Deputy Weber. The second officer that arrived, Deputy Chandler, began talking with Marshall and Brandy. In his report, he stated that Marshall said he was a family friend and had come to visit DJ. Marshall told the deputy that DJ had been depressed for a while and had previously tried to kill himself. He also said that he was in another room, heard the shot go off, and then called 911, and then walked outside with Brandy to try to calm her down. A detective got to the scene just a few minutes later, Detective Ellenberg. He started looking around and, in usual detective fashion, he questioned further about details, seeing if the story remained consistent. Marshall again said that he was in a different room, a bedroom at the end of the trailer, when he heard the gunshot, then went into the living room where DJ was and found him sitting down covered in blood. Detective Ellenberg also asked if Marshall would consent to a gunshot residue test. He said he would, but asked if shooting guns the previous day would mar the results. Ellenberg told Marshall those results would not be tainted because of that. At that point, Marshall said he tried to get the gun out of DJ's hands just before the gun went off. In less than an hour, Marshall had changed the story, and the detective noted that. Marshall also stated numerous times about DJ's past suicidal thoughts and troubles with drugs. He also relayed that he had been asking his mother via text messages if he and Brandy could come back and live with her, which she declined. These messages were all sent via Marshall's phone, since neither DJ nor Brandy had a phone. The messages sent were varied, but there was definitely an odd air to them, with DJ nearly begging his mother to let them come back to live, even saying he was afraid he would end up dead there. He also noted the state of DJ's body, which was sitting on a love seat just inside the front door in the living room. DJ was wearing no shirt, shorts, and slip-on shoes. He had a large wound to his face and had blood on his face, chest, and stomach. The gunshot wound looked to have had the gun placed on DJ's left cheek under the lip line and fired. No exit wounds were seen, but damage to the area in his right cheek and under his right ear were seen. The gun used was a short-barreled 12-gauge shotgun with a pistol grip, and the spent shotgun shell said number four buck on it, which is a type of buckshot, not to be confused with number four birdshot, which are much smaller pellets. There was also no suicide note. Brandy was also questioned while sitting outside at a picnic table, but it was noted that she was unable to answer questions due to crying so much. Ellenberg told her that he would be in contact with her later on so she would have time to settle down. When police showed up at the house, no one was there other than Brandy and Marshall. But after they got there and were still investigating, two more people showed up. A woman named Tabitha Colburn and her husband named David, otherwise known to everyone as Fat Boy. After they arrived at the trailer, they both told detectives that they had not been at that location during the shooting when it happened, but just came once they heard about it and wanted to be with Brandy. With all the initial information given on the scene, the way things looked at the scene, as well as a few other smaller things, 
detectives advised that they had no indication this was anything other than a suicide. That was until further investigation happened. Almost immediately, DJ's mother found out about what had happened and started communicating with police. She was relaying what she had heard and read from DJ via phone and text messages. She believed that he didn't kill himself. She believed he was murdered. Initially, police couldn't immediately and definitively say that anyone had been murdered. All their evidence pointed to a likely suicide. So until it was investigated further, it would be left as a death investigation caused by a possible suicide. The body and initial report was sent to the medical examiner. This was one problem point. Because of it being such a small little town, they didn't have their own coroner. The body was transferred to the GBI, which is the Georgia Bureau of Investigations, for the autopsy. With the paperwork that came to that coroner, it said suspected suicide. She'd only been with the GBI out of school for the la- for six months. So it, to me, she she failed to do her own investigation into it. She looked at it. It did have marks of a suicide. It could be, you know, considered that she read the paperwork saying that it was suicide, but that paperwork came the day, the day that it happened. Basically there was no, you know, investigation afterwards. So she earmarked it as suicide and, and sent it on her on its way. She just did the bare minimum basically. And then detective Ellenberg was investigating it started realizing the inconsistencies in the stories and and found everything out. And he deemed it as more than a suicide. Brandy later on regained some calm, but she didn't initially go to the police. Instead, she was talking to friends and family. She made it into an interview two days later. She was still visibly upset. She was asked about a timeline of all the things that happened. She said that her and DJ had spent the night in the RV on the property with Marshall. The morning of the shooting started out with arguing. DJ wanted some tea to drink, but Brandy gave him Kool-Aid. Later on, after that argument, DJ asked to use Marshall's phone, and those were the times he was texting his mom. Brandy said that DJ was on the love seat, and while she was in the restroom fixing her hair, she saw Marshall angrily come out of the bedroom and shoot DJ in the face. She stated that Marshall was two to three feet away from DJ when he was shot. She also said that the three of them were not the only ones at the trailer when this happened. Tabitha and Fatboy were also inside the house and saw that happen. She said that they would lie because they were friends with Marshall and that she was afraid to tell police what actually happened while Tabitha and Fatboy were there. At this point, Fatboy and Tabitha were on the radar and were needed for an interview. In the meantime, Marshall was brought back in for another interview. He gave his version of what happened earlier in the morning, which was slightly different than what Brandy said. He said he asked DJ what was wrong because he could tell that him and Brandy had been arguing. DJ replied, she's starting her shit again. He said later on that he heard Brandy yelling from the living room and then heard a gunshot but then stopped and changed the story later on and said that he came out of the room and heard Brandy yell, saying that DJ had a gun in his mouth. He said despite his pleas to DJ to not shoot himself, the gun went off. So his story had changed again 
He was also asked if Fatboy was at the house, and Marshall replied negatively, saying that he had gone to the junkyard when the shooting happened. He also later changed that to they could have been there, but he doesn't remember. He also stated that he couldn't remember if he grabbed the gun before it went off or not. Fatboy needed to be found and interviewed. It took a couple days, but he was rounded up and brought in for questioning. He did confirm that he and Tabitha were there in the house at the time of the shooting. He was not initially in the living room, but somewhere else smoking a cigarette. That's when he heard yelling in the living room, which he thought was Marshall saying, I told y'all to shut the fuck up, and then DJ saying, I wish a motherfucker would. When he walked into the living room, he saw DJ sitting on the love seat with a gun in his left hand and Marshall on DJ's left side holding the shotgun with his right hand. He also said that Brandy was pulling on Marshall's arm from behind and the gun went off. He said that him and his wife left the scene because they didn't want to be involved. Marshall was brought back in for further questioning and again his story changed around a bit. He said that he saw DJ pull the gun out from the cushions of the couch and then he wrestled for the gun. He also said this time that Brandy was pulling on his arm and that's when the gun went off. Marshall also volunteered that he had a witness that had seen it all go down. Detectives later confirmed that Marshall and Fatboy had talked in the previous days, and it seemed like they had put together a story with each other since both of their stories were very similar now. Marshall later agreed to a polygraph test, and two key questions stood out during the test. Did you point that gun at DJ, and did you shoot DJ? Both answers showed deception. When interviewed after the test and confronted about the deception, Marshall said that he had not intentionally shot DJ. He tried saying that there was another time where he pointed a pellet rifle at him. As many times as Marshall stated or inferred that this was suicide, it's now shifting to he accidentally shot him. Interviews continued well after that with everyone there, and some stories continued to change but it was pretty evident that this wasn't a simple suicide. Luckily, the detective that was in charge of the case started seeing the inconsistencies in Marshall's story. Even after it was ruled a suicide, he continued to push that there was more people there, obviously with Brandy's testimony saying, or or Brandy's witness statement saying there were more people there and who they were. He started talking to those people. And originally, when he talked to them, they were pushing the narrative of suicide and how things were. They they weren't there. But as things played out and got further and further into the investigation, it started to show that there were more people there, that they were actually there, and they actually saw what had happened. And it it was more than just a suicide. The way all the evidence kept moving around, police now believe that Marshall killed DJ but making an arrest wasn't as simple as they wanted. From the very start of this whole thing, nothing seemed like it was going the right way. It went downhill to me from the end of the 911 call because Marshall portrayed it as only him, Brandy, and DJ being at at the house or at the trailer when all of this happened when in actuality there were i think seven or eight people that were there when when the shooting happened so he he pretty much lied from from the beginning he he had a story put together 
on his call from 911. The moment he he portrayed it as suicide, he made sure to say the word suicide and made sure to say that, you know, he had heard DJ say before that he had, he was going to commit suicide and just kind of put that he was putting the narrative. He was building a narrative of his story from the beginning of the call. And when the police arrived, that once again, the police had been there a ton because of drug related issues. They heard the word suicide. They kind of just kind of pushed it to the side at that point in time. Police were trying to get an arrest made, and that was definitely an uphill battle for them. The medical examiner refused to change her ruling. Because of that and absolute hard evidence, the local district attorney declined to prosecute. It wasn't until DJ's sister, Amanda, got involved that things started changing around. She continued with interviews with detectives, going on to TV shows, news stations, and other podcasts, doing anything she could to get someone to look further into DJ's case. You know, Amanda was the driving force behind DJ's case. She never gave up, and she wouldn't let anyone not recognize DJ's situation. She would not let anyone recognize that DJ would have ever committed suicide. She made it her her life responsibility to get justice for DJ, and that's what she did. She just pushed very hard. She put all of her life on the back burner to make sure DJ got the justice he deserved. And DJ's case wouldn't be anywhere near where it's at today had Amanda not pushed so hard and kept his story in front of the news and outlets of media and all the podcasts that she got on. And and she just did, you know, I, I told her that I would be excited. You know, it would be amazing to me to have somebody push as hard as she did for her brother. And there's not very many people that would push and fight so hard for as long. And I think that's the biggest thing is is everybody pushes hard in that first initial few months, but they get tired and they get burnt out. And, And she just pushed really hard for almost seven years to get justice for him. Earlier this year, nearly seven years after the shooting happened, there was finally some movement. In April or May, I believe, sent all the evidence to the grand jury and they indicted off of that. So it it was it was even so more so than just the police report and the police doing it or a judge ordering it to be indicted. It went to a grand jury. They looked at all the evidence and decided it it, it needed to be prosecuted. So he was arrested in June on two counts of felony murder in, in the state of Georgia. There's a malice murder and felony murder. So they typically always charge on both together. Felony murder is just you commit murder. The other one is is done with intention. I had asked Robert why he would take on covering DJ's case and doing it with such great detail. When I heard his story and I, and I talked to Amanda, it was truly because of the person that he was outside of drugs. It wasn't, it, it wasn't that because of the drug situation it was because of what he was trying to do and it honestly come back down to you know he was in that situation because he he truly loved his wife very much and he put himself in a bad situation to keep her out of a worse situation and to me everybody deserves the same amount of exposure not to do with anything you know someone that's that's on drugs doesn't deserve it as much as somebody that's not on drugs. To me, a victim is a victim, and and everybody should be treated the same.
I want to thank Robert Palmer of the Broken System Podcast for all of his help and collaboration on this episode. I really wouldn't have been able to do this one without him. If you want to hear more about the story of DJ Ficky in a much longer form with a lot more details, check out the Broken System Podcast. You can find it on any podcast app or by going to thebrokensystempodcast.com. I highly recommend you going over for a listen as he was able to cover this in a nine-part series that was way more in-depth than what I did. Links for his show will be in the show notes. If you're needing some help getting to sleep, check out my new podcast, Southern Sleep Stories, where I'll walk you into a good sleep with some old stories read very slowly in my usual deep southern accent. You can also find that on any podcast app. Be sure to give Music City 911, as well as Southern Sleep Stories, a five-star rating and review. And if you want to get more Music City 911, head over to patreon.com for ad-free episodes and bonus content. Stop by the Facebook discussion group and join in on the chat. And until next time, for Music City 911, I'm Brandon, and y'all have a good one. Thank you.